If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. Oh yeah, go Aztecs, yeah? We got a whole crew staying down in Houston for the championship game, which is pretty fun. I haven't seen a shot like that in a long time. Lord, these uh, children of God, we come this morning and in a time of financial insecurity in a city like San Diego in 2022, the most expensive city in the United States per capita, with eggs costing eight bucks a carton, gas projected to hit $6 a gallon this summer possibly, Rents are ridiculouses. Mortgages are impossible. Cost for kids, taxation. Each of these, whether single or married with a family, come with financial burdens and concerns. And you care, and you are a provider. And wealth and money and material possessions are not our identity nor our salvation. I have been praying, I continue to pray, liberate the souls of Neighbors Church, any and all who call this community family. Liberate us that you might occupy our hearts with gladness. Gladness all our days. Contentment, a peace that surpasses understanding that we might be a pastoral and a prophetic presence here in a city consumed with comfort and wealth and continual gain. Oh God. May we be the heralds of the kingdom come, of riches that will not rust, 
of goods that cannot be moth-eaten, of a glory that far exceeds any gold or worth this world might offer us. And Lord, we do, even as we pray in our liturgy, that this local concrete community would have no needy person among us, that we would care for one another tangibly and effectively. For the sake of your glory and for the good of one another, we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So I think if we were this morning to try to list the greatest threats to the modern church, to Christianity in general in the late modern West, I just came up with a short list. It's a fun one. Rapid secularization. This is the radical reorientation of all things spiritual and religious around naturalistic and humanistic ideas. The political idolatry and polarization of our current day that makes politics a god on the one hand and rips to shreds our society on the other. The unchecked sexual revolutions really birthed back in the Enlightenment, culminating in the 60s and now spinning out like a tornado. The radical redefining of human identity, racial divisions, corruption of leadership and abuse of power across every institution that we see, nuclear warfare, the list that the modern church faces is quite daunting. And I'm sure if Jesus were in this room right now, if he were standing here, we went through that list together and we looked to him for guidance. I'm sure he would empathize with our concern. And then I'm, I'm about a thousand percent sure with a wink and with a smile, Jesus would say to us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we'd all sit back in our chairs with a collective sigh of relief maybe high-five one another until Jesus, with a very sober tone, would begin to address us again. And I think he would say something like this, my beloved family, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, but there is a demon hidden in your midst, and it is more deadly than anything that you will ever face externally. Mamonas, mammon, money, mammon, the ancient moniker for the demon god of wealth and material possessions. Jesus said about mammon, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money because, according to Jesus, wealth can devastate the human heart, and wealth, even more terrifyingly, can wreck our salvation. Truly, I tell you, he said to the rich young ruler, it is hard, friends, it is hard. This should terrify us. It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Mammon, mamomas, money. It easily convinces us that we are not in its grips. Whenever you and I, as late modern Westerns, talk about money, we tend to talk about money always in the third person, particularly in reference to the rich, always. Oh, they over there, they're the rich. They are the well-to-do. I wish I had what they have. And if and when we use first-person pronoun, first pronouns, we tend to categorize ourselves in the money talk usually, usually as the less-thans, the have-nots the wish we would have had those things. And that's regardless of how high we find ourselves sitting on the historical and the global hierarchies of humanity in this current moment right here in our seats in sunny San Diego.
Now, of course, I recognize there are those who are legitimately struggling to survive. There are those within our city who are living within abject poverty. But in an urban hub like San Diego, that is a minority hidden in the midst of a middle, middle upper class majority. And that represents most of this room. And Jesus said that that puts you and I in a very precarious position. In two decades of pastoral ministry, 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, I've only had one person that I can remember, a friend whose business was beginning to absolutely explode. We were on a walk and talk, and he began to explore open with, openly with me his, his very real worry about his increasing wealth. The only person I can remember ever talking to me about his worry about his increasing wealth. And the conversation marked me because I personally have never worried about having too much money, ever. <laughs> I've never been waking up in the mornings during my prayer time saying, Father, I'm concerned that my wealth is gonna wreck my faith and pollute my identity and mess up the way that I view equality in this world. As the most wealthy population of humans to ever exist on this planet, the affluent late modern Western church, that's you and I, we have tended to, in general, co-opt biblical terms, favor, oh, God's favor is upon, oh, God's blessing is upon, and for us, that translates to God is making things bigger and better and more and upward and to the right all the time, world without end. Now, of course, throughout the biblical record, blessing and favor are marked by increase in some cases. But Jesus counterbalanced our American definitions and ideas of blessing and favor, especially around wealth, money, and material gain, by teaching virtually the opposite. Blessed, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The deceitfulness, Jesus would say, of wealth, this is in our liturgy, chokes the word, making it unfruitful. So Jesus of Nazareth was the culmination of a long line of wisdom teachers. And all the wisdom teachers of antiquity warned quite severely about the dangers of affluence. Jesus echoed and he made concrete the lessons of teachers like Koheleth, this ancient philosopher who we've been following through the book of Ecclesiastes, building resilience as our way of doing instead of cynicism. Remember these taglines? Rest is our way of being, Sabbath practice being our anchor. And Koheleth, when it comes to material gain and money, was an expert in the field of wealth and affluence. Koheleth modeled his life and teachings after the most well-to-do kings of Hebrew antiquity. Privilege and immeasurable prosperity marked this man's life. And his conclusion about all of his money, all of his wealth, all of his material possessions, class, anybody got to guess what, what he said? Meaningless. Hevel. Hevel this ungraspable smoke, this vapor. To make your life's meaning money is to herd the wind, Koheleth would say. And so from his own experience and in his observations from our text this morning, Koheleth noted three things. Money's oppressive power, money's insatiability, and money's false security. Money's oppressive power, money's insatiability, and money's false security. Let's start with money's oppressive power, verses eight through nine of Ecclesiastes. I'll read it for us again. If you see the poor and oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. 
Kohelet looks out on the oppression of the world with a somewhat resigned tone, and he says to his listeners, look, don't be surprised when people in power and when people in places of privilege, do not be surprised when they press down the poor, the less thans. Do not be surprised when there is injustice and oppression for personal gain because oppression and injustice, when there is a clamoring for money, are virtually synonymous. They cannot be divorced from one another. What Koheleth saw when he looked at his world, much like ours, was a vast governmental and political bureaucracy that was oppressing those most in need by red taping and prioritizing actually feeding the machine versus helping the helpless. And Koheleth also saw arrogance. The Hebrew here is actually quite technical, quite difficult, but intimated throughout his words about the bureaucracies and leaders and the higher people and the kings is this tone of arrogance. What Koheleth saw is that those who build their identity on affluence and material gain and money, the result is an arrogant heart. Arrogance, a better than entitlement that calluses the heart to other humans and keeps consuming at cost, always pressing down those considered less than. Now, it was St. Paul in the New Testament who alerted his communities, you and I, to the oppressive power of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, track with me here, because this is going to hit every single one of us in the heart. How many of you have been reading the Bible for more than five years, just by a show of hands? Okay, good. This is really going to bug you. Christians have rightly noted over the many years, those of us that have been trained to read the Bible carefully, Christians have rightly noted that Paul said, hey, 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 it's the love of money, not money itself, that's the root of all kinds of evil. And then we Christians go on to entirely miss the point that Paul is making. This is what we do. With a single exegetical nuance, with a single exegetical maneuver, and I've done this a thousand times, we effectively neutralize money. We make it harmless to our hearts because, you know, I don't love money. <laughs> I don't love money. I just worry about it and strive for it and spend energy trying to gain it and wish I had more and I let it define me, but I don't love money. And Paul says it's the love of money, not money, Dan. Listen, when we neutralize mamonas, mammon, money, when we neutralize money, we damage our hearts. It is self-destructive to neutralize this thing. And then we subtly excuse ourselves from the oppressive effects that our excessive financial patterns impose on the world around us. Dear church, American capitalist economies are driven by this insatiable need for fast, fashionable, low-cost, quickly made, easily accessible goods and wares from every sector, from clothing to kids' toys to technologies. And someone out there in the world pays the cost for that cost-effective good and wear that you are wearing today. They pay it in labor. Whether we are conscious of that or not. And so our excessive patterns press down. Jesus' communities intentionally seek to limit the impact of our oppression by reducing our excessive spending. We buy what is needed. More on this later in the teaching. And if possible, there's a whole movement, a beautiful movement of morally made goods, buying our clothing, buying our goods and wares from reputable sources that protect their labor forces rather than abusing them. Because, friends, Koheleth noted, you and I, we will never have enough. Money's insatiability. 
Money's insatiability, verses 10 through 11. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And the reason that we will never have money, or never, excuse me, have enough money is because wealth cannot support the weight of our identity. Remember, work can't support the weight of our identity a few teachings ago, and wealth cannot support the weight of our identity. Why? Because we were designed to revel and live in the riches of God's abundance without fear. Adam and Eve, they never feared for their food or their shelter because they walked in secure communion with their perfect provider. Defining themselves by the cost of their clothing or the size of their houses or their yearly budget, it just wasn't an option for two naked people living unashamed as children of God in the Garden of Eden. It just wouldn't have even registered to them. But as all humans have done, we partook of that forbidden fruit which is analogous to us saying, we will take God's definition of beautiful, right, valuable living, and we will define it for ourselves by our budgets, by the sizes of our houses, by how fast our cars go. And when we self-define the good and beautiful life, we suddenly had to begin covering ourselves with fig leaves of financial prosperity. No matter how much we have, it will never, ever come close to the riches that you and I and our souls were designed to receive and to rest in. And the tragic irony and great danger of money is its ability to satisfy, is its inability, excuse me, its inability to satisfy is that even when we have it, it will never satisfy us even when we have it because once we have it, we consume it like fire burning up a paper. There's always more to be consumed by the greater wealth that we have, always. Koheleth noted this, verse 11, chapter 5, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The average American household has more than 300,000 items in it today. 300,000 items. As of 2023, self-storage is one of the fastest growing business sectors in the United States, and there are more than 1.7 billion square feet of storage space. Full disclosure, personal confession from Pastor Dan this morning. This last week, I had Shua go and empty neighbor's church storage so that I could teach this teaching with integrity. (laughs) So we just got rid of all of our storage, and so should you. (laughs) Oh, man. Crap just accumulates, and you're like, what do you do with this? Well, we pay extra exorbitant amounts of money to just set it out where we don't know where it is or what it's doing out there. Koheleth's observation of the average American material's possessions was this. Verse 11, what benefit are they to the owners? What benefit is all this stuff? 1.7 billion square feet of storage. What benefit is this to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? In other words, what good is all this stuff stowed away in storage units except for maybe once or twice a year to go to try to find something, feast your eyes on all that you have, close the door, lock it up, and not see it for another year? It's all hevel, smoke, vapor. It's all this grasping for identity through our material goods. And Jesus and Koheleth himself would both say, this is damaging to the soul and it is dangerous for our salvation. Money and its power oppresses. Money will always be insatiable. And money always provides a false security. Money's false security. Koheleth goes kind of right for the jugular here. 
He goes right for the elephant in the room because most of you are probably like me. When the money talk comes up, my defense mechanisms go into overdrive. They just, I have about a thousand justifications and excuses for anything that is ever said about my personal money as to why they're wrong about me and my money. I don't, ha- I don't love money, I say. I'm not greedy. I'm not intentionally oppressing anyone with the way that I buy clothing, good, and wares. I'm not doing that intentionally. That's not my fault. Wait, I'm not, I'm not excessive. Am I excessive? No, I'm not excessive in what I buy. I only buy what I need. Oh, my gosh. It's a broken world, I'll say. And this is just the way it is, you know? Or even worse yet, I begin to go, you know what? I've worked really hard. I've worked really hard for what I've worked for, and therefore, I deserve it. And besides, and here's where Koheleth begins to address false security. Besides, pastor, you're up there talking about money. How are we supposed to buy groceries? How are we supposed to pay rent? I've got to have money to survive. I can't survive without money. In other words, when we think about money and when the uncomfortable, challenging talks about money come up, especially within the church, what we do, what I do, is retreat to the security that money provides in my mind. I have to have money so that I can survive. i got to put a roof over my family's head. Something that Jesus knows we all obviously need. But Jesus and Kohala say that if we're standing on money as our source of security, we are standing already on a cracked and faulty foundation. Notice verse 12, Ecclesiastes 5. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So what Koheleth does here is he calls the bluff on money as a point of security, and he contrasts the poor laborer. And the poor laborer has learned to be content with little or with much. He or she gets home from a hard day's work, spends time with the family, sets their alarm for the next day, and then goes into a deep sleep. While the individual who needs, the individual who needs just a bit more, the individual who's always making sure that security is secured, can't sleep at night even though they have more than the poor laborer. Anxiety, worrying about it. And so this is why Paul encouraged his communities throughout the Roman Empire, surrounded by opulence and indulgence, Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, make it your ambition, church, to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anyone. In other words, Paul would say to the church, labor quietly, labor diligently as unto the Lord and other passages throughout the New Testament, and then trust him to provide exactly what is needed, not only to survive, but in the case of the American church, to thrive. He is a good father. He is generous. He is benevolent. He is over the top lavish in what he has given to us in this current moment. And Colheather says, when you make money your security, try to look at money realistically. Wealth is super finicky, and wealth is never, ever secure. 13 to 14, Ecclesiastes 5. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. And so just as Jesus said, a person can gain the whole world but lose their soul, many, many have been lost to the abyss of more work for more gain. But the great myth of this modern, comfortable moment that we are so convinced of, that our society has sold us so convincingly, is that wealth will just always be there. Money will just always be available. And wealth, if it cannot bear the weight of our identity, wealth certainly cannot bear the weight of our security. Little economy lesson here, and I'm not an economist. This is just what I've picked up in my own reading and listening. The truth is, modern economies, America, 
the West, Europe, places like this, they are built solely on ridiculous levels of trust and belief. Trust and belief. The American dollar has virtually nothing of real value backing it. Nothing. It's just a piece of paper. We abandoned the gold standard in 1971, over 50 years ago. I know you may think that when you hold up that little piece of $1 that it represents $1 of gold. It does not any longer, and it hasn't for over 50 years. You and I are able to go buy something today with a dollar because we have all agreed. The purchaser and the person selling the good or where or the food, today we hand them that and we say, I believe these pieces of paper are worth this burrito. And they say, I believe these pieces of paper are worth the burrito that I made for you. Cha-ching. It's all belief. There's no actual value behind it. Now listen to this. Cryptocurrency roller coasters, stock market plunges, rapid inflation, real estate bubbles, financial institutional bailouts, runs on Silicon Valley banks. These are just little tremors, little reminders that modern economies are horrifically fragile. So when you and I make wealth or money our security, we are placing the weight of our life on an agreed-upon myth of meaningless and non-existence value that could collapse if a series of the wrong tweets catch too many people's attention, causing panic and catastrophic fiscal meltdown. What a great Sunday morning. <laughs> Listen. Having emphasized the oppression and the insatiability and the insecurity of money, Koheleth, he proposes a nuanced way forward for all of us. And what he does is he lays out three practices that will free you and I today and for the rest of our lives from the enslavement of mammon. Stewardship, simplicity, and generosity. Stewardship, simplicity, and generosity. Let's walk through these and then we'll call it a morning, all right? Stewardship. Here's what Koheleth says about stewardship. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they get for their gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. What Koheleth observed and was honest about was, you and I came into the world with nothing. Nothing. And we are going to leave this world with nothing. For Koheleth, it was a great source of frustration, as we've seen throughout his teachings. But the great delusion of modernity that the church has sort of adopted wholesale is that wealth, material gain, and money is ours. It's as if it's ours. We, we too have adopted the mentality that we worked for it, we earned it, we own it, therefore we do what we want with it. But from the Bible's perspective, we are stewards of God's creation, starting in Genesis 1 all the way to the end. And we are especially stewards of God's wealth. Steward is one of those old English words. And it referred to a person who was literally bought and employed to manage another's property, especially a large house or estate. I cannot imagine a better word to describe Christians. Those bought by another to manage a large estate. Call it earth. Including the wealth of earth. We have been bought by Jesus. And so now we are merely stewards of his creation, especially his wealth. This is the beginning of freedom from mammon, friends. 
This is where we begin to unshackle ourselves and untether ourselves from the control and the deceptive power of money. It's a radical, radical shift in mind to wake up and say, this is not mine. This is his. This is his. So what does he want me to do with it? But that is where it starts. And as we shift that mind frame day by day, going to work to steward God's world and work in God's world to then steward his wealth for his glory and the good of this world, then we resist the demand for more and more and more by practicing simplicity. Stewardship and then simplicity. Simplicity. This is what I have observed, verses 18 to 19, Ecclesiastes 5. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So Koheleth concludes that in all this meaningless grasping and uncontrollability, all this hevel, all this smoke and vapor that we call our lives, the best thing that a person can do is learn to enjoy what they have. This will come up over and over and again as we reach the back half of this book. And this, learning to enjoy in a way of simplicity, is at the crux of healthy practices around money for Christians. The Christian chooses simplicity, an ancient discipline, simplicity over more. And we learn to enjoy life with less because life, Jesus said, does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Now, it's really important to note here, this is not a call to poverty. There are many Christians throughout human history who have been called to poverty. The monks, the the monastic movements take a vow of poverty and they rely on the alms and the giving of and the generosity of the world around them. We are not contemporarily called to poverty. God indeed wants you and I to enjoy our clothing and our technology and our burritos. He wants us to enjoy the provision that he gives, but to truly enjoy provision, we need simplicity to protect our hearts from becoming malformed by the lies of mammon and more mammon and more material goods and more things that we try to build ourselves up on and in and through. Friends, this is one of the core values that is at the center of this church. You guys remember our values? Simplicity, number one. Stillness, number two. Spirit, number three. At the very front end of this church is both a spiritual simplicity and a material simplicity. You see it everywhere that you look around this community. We don't dive into a lot of extracurricular peripheral stuff. We get what we need for the glory of God, and then we serve one another and try to give the rest of it away. We filter every decision at Neighbors through financial, organizational, missional, communal, through this grid of simplicity. Now, before we go any further here, I don't want you to think of simplicity. Don't mistake simplicity as the absence of complexity. Life will always be complex. There's always going to be additions. And don't mistake it for the lack of, of, of aesthetic excellence. We will seek to do all things well, and we will spend money to do things well. But simplicity is continually asking, is this the way that God wants us to steward his wealth in this world? And God the Spirit wants to invite our entire community from this teaching on into a life of a little bit less. Just start small for the sake of greater joy. Just try it. Pray, ask, go into your closet, Look at the goods and wares that you have in your home, the 300,000 plus items in your home. Look at your storage. (laughs) 
And begin to ask yourself, Father, where are you asking me to live a more simple life that I might live more joyfully in the provision that you have given that I might be more generous, which is the final and most powerful way that we resist mammon. Stewardship, simplicity, generosity. Kohalath finishes here, 520. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So what Kohalath describes here is a person who doesn't spend their days striving. This person, whoever this person is, they are no longer anxiously awake all through the night trying to, trying to figure out how to secure their future because they are so focused. Their faith has been so developed. They are so trusting and released and surrendered to what God provides as they work hard, as they labor, as they do due diligence, as they pray. They are focused on God, and he occupies their heart with gladness. Doesn't that sound like a good way to live your life? To have your heart occupied with gladness. And this, friends, this gladness that we all long for, it builds through a lifelong, intentional, day-by-day, moment-by-moment, consistent commitment to what? Stewardship, simplicity, and generosity. Today, it's not mine. Today, I recognize I'm going to always want more, so I'm going to live simply, and then I'm going to look through my budget, and I'm going to give the rest away. Koheleth was saturated in the Torah's teaching on generosity. Now, depending on how you add up the text prescriptions, because we're going to get really concrete here for the back half of this, we're almost done. But depending on how you add up all the texts in Torah, law, prophets, wisdom writings, that had to do with generosity... Some scholars estimate that the ancient Jewish peoples and the household alone would be giving in upwards of 23 to 30% of their income every year. 23 to 30% of a Jewish household income would be given back to temple endeavors and care for the poor on a yearly basis. So that's the baseline for us. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The baseline for us is 10%. And I used to just waffle around on this big time because there is not a New Testament tithe. You're not going to find tithe in the New Testament. You're going to find Paul's call to generosity. And then I discovered in my own heart that I can engineer all sorts of ways to think about generosity that have no concrete thing. And usually genera- generosity gets relegated to what I have left over after I've, I've spent everything that I want for myself. So I began finally just saying, you know what, 10% is a baseline. And I've come to really believe that 10% is a baseline for mature Christian generosity. And that's drawn from the biblical language of tithe, which literally translates 10. Now, according to Paul, as you travel through the New Testament and his teachings on giving, Christian giving should be joyful, consistent, and sacrificial. Joyful, consistent, and sacrificial. And it's that sacrificial part that I was just talking about. That's where things get complicated in the late Western, modern, affluent heart. Jesus made it clear. Sacrificial giving costs us to the point where we are not able to get something we otherwise would have been able to get. Okay? So the examples we have in the Gospels are the widow. She gives all of her livelihood to the temple. And the woman who pours out her entire year's wages, an alabaster jar of perfume on Jesus' feet. If this morning, and I just, I want to gently and pastorally ask you to consider this. If your, if my giving does not compromise our ability to get something we want, then we have not given anything yet in the form of a tithe, in the form of a sacrifice. We haven't. We haven't. But Dan, and if you've got the whole list of defense mechanisms up and running, you're just going to have to wrestle with those. I'm just going to let you wrestle with those because every Christian has to wrestle with that line of defense mechanisms. I'm going to get very personal here for just a moment. 
I will be honest. I struggle with generosity like you would not believe. I don't want to be some holy, holy, hoity-toity, I've got it all figured out. I just generously, joyfully give every single week. It's not like that. My wife has the gift of generosity, hospitality, and faith, and he put her with a miser (laughs) to help me. Early on in our marriage, when I first became a Christian and I began being exposed to tithe, I had no church background at all. And I came into the church and there was like stay-at-home moms, which I was like, what's that? And then I was like, wait, there's like pastors and there's the Bible. And then, and then you give away your money? Are you guys idiots? Are you crazy? But we got married and from the very, very beginning, I struggling, her joyfully said, look, we're going to establish... And When I left the construction world, I was making a lot of money. And I was your classic youth pastor. I came in, and they hired me for pennies. And we had our brand new little baby. (laughs) Lex and I said, 10%. 10%. That is the baseline. This is the beginning of our marriage. And I'm telling you, 10%, it is a chunk of change. And I have wrestled with it over the years. Why? Because it, it has cost us. It has cost us vacations. It has cost us purchases. It has cost us different opportunities for our family. It has cost us certain desires. It has cost me a lot of things that I wanted that I could not have and things that we wanted to do that we could not do. And I will be very blunt, especially in the early days when we were living well below the poverty line for many, many years with babies. It cost us genuine needs that we could not meet ourselves. I had a meltdown in our driveway in our little house there in Twin Falls where I was just like, where are the needs I'm giving? I'm slamming on the steering wheel. And she was just like, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Where are these needs if you're going to meet these needs? And guess what? God has met those needs. Even after I've melted down and lost my mind. And that is the point of generosity that is sacrificial. This is not imprudence. We should each have moments in our Christian life where we are not able to meet a need that God must meet. And he has for us all through our lives, 20 years. And I'm not going to make this sound all rosy for myself personally. Those times where God has shown up have been hard for me. I have an incredibly, and I don't say this pridefully, I have an incredibly huge work ethic. I have worked hard since I was like 10 years old. And in our earliest years of marriage, when I was like, I'm the provider for this family, and we're given 10%, and I do not know how I'm going to feed my family this week, I would get home, and somebody would have put groceries up on our upper balcony, and it wasn't like I was like, thank you, God, you provided. I was like, oh, it's so humiliating. But God was testing my pride. God was reorienting my dependence. And he was saying, kiddo, I will provide. I said I would provide. I will provide. Humble yourself and give. Over and over and over, 20 years, 20 years of that. And this, friends, is the one place that God says, test me. This is our big passage for this year. This is our big passage for this year financially as a community, as a faith community forming. We're really holding up Malachi. I really want all of you in your morning devotion times, take your Bible, and I want you to open it up to Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. I want you to hold it up like this, and I want you to say, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. And then look up and say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to test you in this. I'm going to prove you, 
says the Lord God Almighty. And he says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing. Blessing being presence. Blessing being his provision. Not a jet. Not your wish list. Not even more material goods. Blessing being his provision for you as he seeks to provide for you. And there will not be room enough for you to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, and your 401ks may be destroyed, but I'll meet you there at the end of it, and your college loans may not get paid off by this current administration, but I'm still going to help you pay for it. All of these things, says the Lord Almighty, then all the nations, then all the nations. Generosity has mission at its heart. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land and household, says the Lord Almighty. That's the invitation for our community this year, friends. And we are behind. I had Lex run the numbers from Q4 to, to Q1 and got with the bookkeepers and got with all the, all the people that are able to do all that kind of stuff and give me all the stuff. We're behind. And we need to make up some ground in the, in the multiple thousands of dollars. It's easy for us to do that just by the numbers. And I'm utterly persuaded that our community is so vibrant. God is with us, and he's going to provide. But he is inviting you to be responsible for your church, to care for and provide for your church. And this church continues to test God. We, as a community, test God in this way. We give away 10%. I can't tell you, over the three years that we've been alive now, and we write 10%. We support church plants, and then 5% goes out to social justice initiatives. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, that 10% is a lot of money, and that would help us because we are behind. You said, test you in this, and so we're going to test you in this. When you and I get lost in the insatiability and the false security of wealth and money, what we do is we miss out on something, and we miss out on that embodied trust that God wants to lead us into with true riches in God's kindness and his provision. And so, as we come to, com to communion this morning, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus gave up everything to free us from mammon's deceptive power. And so, we can give up all things to him that are already his. We are to turn away from loving, worrying about, accumulating, and obsessing over more money and turn to Jesus. We must be guarded and not let wealth entangle and choke the fruitfulness of our lives. We're to rest in the abundance of our Father's ability to provide our needs for us. We're to test him and to trust him. Would you guys all please stand with me for the reading of the liturgy this morning? I've added something to the liturgy this morning. There was this prayer that I was praying over you guys all this week from Julian of Norwich. We can read it together. Let's read this together. God, in your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough for me. I can ask for nothing less that is to your glory. And if I ask for anything less, I shall still be in want. For only in you have I all. And then the rest of our liturgy. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Friends, as we come to communion this morning, whoever you are here with, I'd like you to do something before Joshua begins to lead us in song. I'd like you to just turn to them and just confess, this is what I'm scared about with this teaching. Just confess it. Just like, I'm terrified of this. Or maybe some of us feel a guilt right now. Just confess, I feel guilty. Or maybe some of us are being prompted, like, I feel like God is stirring me and challenging me to an even more test-worthy faith. Just turn, say that, and then the person that you said it to, say a brief five-second prayer. Father, bless this person. Father, heal this person. Father, give this person grace. And then we're going to sing and take communion, okay? Go ahead, share, just very briefly.